0: You have a Bible, would you please open it now to 1 Samuel chapter 19. As we continue a series of sermons on the life of David, a man after God's own heart, and today we're going to see uh, another instance of conflict that is escalating between the king Saul and the anointed heir apparent, David. And so, another fascinating chapter um, in the history of redemption, uh, pointing to the nature of conflict that we all experience one way or another. Here now, the word of the Lord, we will read the entirety of chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have, been brought, have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, that is Goliath, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear but he eluded Saul so that he stuck the, struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow, you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul. He said to him, let me go. Why shouldn't I kill you? Or why should I kill you now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him and he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth and it was told Saul behold David is at Nioth in Ramah Saul knew exactly where that was by the way then Saul sent messengers to take David And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. Then he himself came to Ramah and he came to the great well that is in Seqiu and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are in Nioth in Ramah. And he went there to Nioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went and prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? What a strange story. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that uh, we would benefit from this time together looking at your word because there's much here to speak to us. And we pray that you would bless us uh, as we depend upon the Holy Spirit both to give the one who preaches power and illumination and insight and wisdom uh, to preach and also to the one who hears an open teachable tender fleshly heart that is one that is moldable by your spirit as he brings to bear upon our lives the truth of God's Word and we pray that you would exalt yourself uh, during this time and that we would see Jesus And Him only. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now when I was a little boy, reading this chapter made me flashback to being a little boy watching cartoons on Saturday morning. Now this was back during the days when you only got three channels. You didn't have the cartoon network. You didn't have none of that. We got three channels and sometimes if the uh, wind was blowing right and the sky was clear, you could get four channels. But I remember watching Wile Coyote and the Roadrunner. Anybody here know who I'm talking about, Wile Coyote? Oh, yeah, okay, okay. And I remember watching it with my dad, and my dad would sit in the chair, and he'd watch it, and then, of course, every time Wile Coyote would be foiled, curses foiled again, so to speak, and my dad would roar with laughter. I laughed more at my dad laughing than I did at the cartoon, but the cartoon makes the point. Saul is Wiley e. Coyote. He doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. He is so obsessed, so driven, so passionate about rubbing out David that he doesn't see who his real conflict is with. And who is it with? Right. Saul is in conflict with Yahweh. He is in conflict with God. I remember somebody telling me a long time ago, your arms are too short to box with God. You're never going to win. Don't enter a fight. You know that you're never going to win. And you will not beat God. No one beats God. God is God. That's the ultimate presupposition of life. In the beginning was God. Not you, not me, God and God is sovereign, and God has his purposes, and he has his plans, but Saul is shaky. He's shaky mentally. He's shaky emotionally. He's shaky spiritually. Um, The spirit of the Lord has departed from him. He's in the declining phase of his kingship. It's over. It's done, but so far, he still occupies the throne. And so as a result of that, these things continue to happen. But the focus of chapter 19, as we look at it together, is the great issue on which we are invited to reflect is the contest, really, between the relentless will of Yahweh and the diseased but powerful will of Saul. Yahweh will have David be king. That is the hidden hope of the narrative. Saul will have David destroyed for the sake of his own throne and for the sake of his own peace of mind and for his family. So therefore we know what Saul doesn't know in this text. We already know that Samuel has anointed David as the next king. Saul doesn't know this. He just sees David originally as a hero, a Johnny-come-lately who defeated Goliath, and now popular opinion had turned toward elevating David. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul has come to the conclusion that he can't trust anybody else to deal with this. He will come to that conclusion. He's going to have to take it in his own hands. He's going to have to do it himself. But where does this come from in Saul's being in his heart? Well, I want you to look at a passage in the New Testament, James 4 and I want you to see the source of conflict you know I love this passage and I hate this passage I love it because it's true I hate it because it's true and and that's (laughs) true of me should I say what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions you adulterous people and he goes on and talks about friendship with the war being uh, with the world being enmity toward God but where does conflict come from Perhaps some of you are in conflict right now. You're in conflict with somebody in your family. You're in conflict with a coworker. You're in conflict with someone at school. And so conflict is there, and you have to ask yourself the question, where does that come from? It comes from something inside of me that's sort of boiling over. Some people are just walking conflicts. They're not happy unless there's chaos and unless things are stirred up, and they're miserably happy then. But where does this come from? It comes from our passions, our lust, our desire, our consuming desire, really to be our own gods and to take upon ourselves the responsibilities and powers of deity. But what we see in this text are really four escapes. You see it outlined in your bulletin for you. There are four escapes in the sense that God delivers David from this king uh Saul doesn't realize what we know already and so as a result of that he's attempting to take matters in his own hand David is a threat to him that can no longer be tolerated and so in this chapter it's very clear that Saul has determined that David shall no longer live and this determination uh advances beyond Saul's cunning and strategizing in chapter 18 to have somebody else do the dirty work that is the Philistine army so no one can charge him no one can trace it back to him so he keeps sending David out to war he promises two daughters to him and gives him the second one for a hundred four skins thinking he's going to get killed eventually somebody's going to do him in now he calls a cabinet meeting as it were in, ch- in chapter Uh, 19 and verse 1, and he announces this fearful intention, uh, the one whom Saul plans to kill is the one who Jonathan delights in. And so Jonathan steps to the fore. He is the first one to deliver David from his death. Saul goes, I mean Jon calls this meeting, Jonathan goes to him, make sure that David is protected, make sure that David can hear literally what's going on out in the field and they're talking together and Saul states it clearly, he's got to go, he's got to die. It's over for him. But Jonathan negotiates. Jonathan is filled with wisdom. On the one hand, he has to respect his father, who is the king. On the other hand, he loves David. They have connected. He realizes that David deserves to be the next king. He's even given him all the symbols and signs from his life, the heir apparent. Jonathan has given to David all the trappings of royalty. We saw that last week. And so now he begins to try to negotiate with Saul, and he brings up the fact that, look, this guy's not against you. There's no reason for you to be threatened by him. He's a loyal, faithful soldier. He killed Goliath. He delivered your people from the oppression of the Philistines. He's still going out and winning battles. He's on your side. He's the biggest asset you've got. So it seems that he's making headway with this argument. It seems he's he's getting through. But Jonathan, at great risk to himself, becomes David's powerful advocate in the face of Saul. And he uses Goliath as the basis for his argument. Uh, On the basis of that event alone, why would Saul kill David Uh, and be responsible for the murder? And so Saul seems at this point to be persuaded. But Saul is never persuaded very long. But at this point, he seems to be, he seems to go, okay, I get it, okay, yeah. In the end, David is restored back to the palace, back to living uh, where the king is, back to his part-time job of playing the liar to calm this crazy man down. When uh, the evil spirit came upon him and he uh, exhibited all kinds of crazy um, out of, Uh, control emotions and actions and this time uh, David is delivered of course by his own agility here Uh, it's a short-lived restoration toward peace Jonathan's persuasiveness and David's well-being are quite short-lived here David has another military success against the Philistines in verse eight and Saul the threat comes back I mean, this guy's just growing. I can't stop him. Everywhere he turns, he gets blessed. Everything he does prospers. And there's only one way now that I can possibly deal with this and come out ahead. He's got to go. So he has one of these fits that he's known to have. He picks up a spear. He throws it at David, attempting to pin him to the wall. Apparently, David saw it coming. Uh, Saul, by the way, we know was a tall Uh, athletic kind of person I'm sure he could cast a spear pretty accurately he was a great warrior but he misses and and David eludes Saul and he escapes and so there again David uh, is delivered from death the evil spirit had to do not only with probably demonic activity but it also refers to the emotional illness that this man had but we begin to see that Saul's heart is becoming hardened toward David he's past the point his heart has hardened which reminds me a lot of Pharaoh in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus when he refused to let God's people leave and go uh, out of Egypt and Pharaoh hardened his heart and then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and then Pharaoh hardened his heart back and somebody says who started it all? Uh, you'll have to ask God when you get to heaven but in my judgment there was grace provided he hardened his heart and resisted therefore God withdrew any influences from him and I don't believe it was active hardening as much as preterition or passing by or limiting uh the restraint upon him and he became evil and so this is where it was and so Yahweh not only prospers those who are favored but he works for their well-being by protecting them from their adversaries and people who are out to perpetrate foolish and destructive acts toward them and this tells us of God's meticulous sovereignty what does it mean to say God is sovereign God is authoritative he oversees everything in the world he foreordains everything that comes to pass nothing happens not one hair falls from your head if you got any left not one hair falls from your head without his permission god rules he reigns he's absolute in his king kingdom and he is sovereign over every detail And while that is true, and we acknowledge that, and we believe that, we ourselves are responsible. We are accountable. We have to answer. We can't blame God for what goes on in our own life as a result of our choices. And so God is sovereign. But the good thing about God being sovereign is he also loves us. And to those of us who belong to him, he's our father. And he delights in us. And he only brings that into our lives that ultimately will accomplish that great goal of his, uh, the good things for us. His heart is set toward us to do us good. But in now, in chapter 18 and verse 11, Saul contemplated a personal attack on David, but David has evaded him twice. So Saul wanted to pin David to the wall, but he ends up only pinning a spear to the wall instead of David. And so Saul is at this point incapable of any kind of good judgment, However, by the work of the Spirit, an unstable person, his moods of generosity and despair are deep and incongruous. The bearer of God's future is now a hunted man, sought by the king and all his minions. David is thus far in the narrative completely passive. He's not taking any action at all toward uh, Saul. He takes no initiative at all. The narrative simply gives room for the venom of Saul to have its full and destructive play. Now, David goes home. And he's with Saul's second daughter. Uh, You can call her Michael. The Hebrew for that name is actually Michal. That's why I call her that. Uh, I could easily change it to Michael, but it just doesn't feel right. So I'm saying Michal. (laughs) It's not that I don't know what I'm talking about so that preacher can't see he doesn't see the sea in that name you know I know how it goes so Saul can now think of nothing except the threat of David he's somewhat like Lyndon Johnson in his response toward the Kennedy family <laughs> if you can remember that far back he was preoccupied with the Kennedys Saul's resolve to kill David as soon as he comes out of his house in the morning is now we are now given privy to that knowledge Saul's problem, as we will see, will be the intervention of his second child. His first child, Jonathan, provides deliverance early. Now his daughter, Mihal provides deliverance now. And so let's look at that part of the narrative and again see how Saul attempts to accomplish his goal. Uh, Saul has a bold resolve to kill David. And so we see, but Jonathan intervenes. Now Saul has another opportunity that he's taking upon himself to kill David, but the phrase, but Mihal" Saul's immediate problem in this text is the powerful intervention of his own children. First, Jonathan is very direct with Saul and persuasive in his rhetoric. Michael, by contrast, is devious and indirect, but equally effective. Even in the desperate escape through a window, David takes no initiative to save himself. It is Michal who initiates the action. And so it's through Michal's subterfuge that David gets away. This reminds us, if you're a student of the scriptures, of Rahab during the conquest in Jericho, where she lets the spies out by the window who the powers and authority of Jericho were after and then tells, shall we say misinformation, uh, about the spies being there. Uh, she's a little more elaborate here. She takes, uh, I think our text was very generous with it. She took an image, it's called a terabine. And the terabine were little household idols uh, that were common, I suppose, in this time. Uh, why she had the idol I don't know but I do know also that Rachel in the Old Testament brought her household idols when she was brought to Jacob to be his wife and stuck them under her saddle that she rode in but here Michal's got an idol and it must have been of some size because she puts it in the bed like a dummy to fool those who were searching for David and she takes a goat skin some seeing that some sort of sacrifice I don't but she takes a goat skin and prepares the bed you know some of you've done this when uh, you snuck out of the house as a teenager and you put your pillows to look like a person laying in the bed and you covered it up and if you had a wig or something you stuck it at the top so somebody opens the door they peep in they see well he's still in the bed he's a and so she does that ruse and and it's kind of brilliant in a lot of ways because it slows down all the action gives david time to get away this is one smart woman and even in his desperate escape through the window he does nothing. It is Michal who constructs the elaborate subterfuge to give David time to escape. She reports that David is sick, and Saul is so desperate, he's so frightened, he's so angry, he's so obsessed, that he's prepared to kill a sick man. Now that's about to get to the bottom, isn't it? Uh, he tried his hitmen, <laughs> he tried the enemies. The Philistines and now he's ready to kill a sick man while he has his chance. When the messengers arrive they discover what we already know David's not there. A dummy's been made to look like David and as a result of that we hear the pathos in Saul's voice when he says why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go. Saul's pathos, however, is not enough to compel Mihal's honest respect. Mihal dissembles, or lies, once more. Now let's talk about this lie. Let's talk about Rahab's lie. And, and of course we all know that the, the scriptures take a really dim view of lying. Because what do we do when we lie? We don't like reality as it really is, so we lie to create a reality that we like. That we can get along with that will deliver us or save us trouble or keep us from being caught or harmed and so she tells misinformation most theologians that commented on this and most that I've read said uh, lying of course is an abomination it's one of the seven sins that God hates Uh, misinformation you might call it or dissembling or lying but in this case Saul Had uh, in reality disqualified himself from receiving the truth because he's out to kill somebody. Of course, we all know about the hiding of uh, the Jews from the Nazis during World War II and how uh, people who were helping them would hide him out in the house and lie about their presence and whether or not that was a moral or immoral thing. I don't think it's a sin in this case. I think Saul had forfeited the right to the truth because he was out to kill David. Now call that whatever you want to. I do agree with John Frame, who's a theologian I respect. Don't agree with everything, but I respect who says that every moral decision has three uh, three aspects to it. It has to do with what Scripture says, the normative pole, uh, what and who we are, uh, the personal pole, and then he argues for the situational pole. Here would be a context in which Saul is attempting to murder David. And so she doesn't tell the whole truth about where he is. She dissembles. Now, uh, the problem with that is you can take that and run the other way so fast it becomes lying <laughs> for the wrong reason. But she's protecting her husband here from her father who is out to do him in, and she knows that well. And so uh, uh, the dummy's made; it accomplishes his purpose. She says that he's sick, uh, and so Saul goes off on her, and. Uh, Here, uh, Saul's evil spirit has infected the whole scene. This kind of looks soap opera-ish to me. It kind of looks like a dime store novel, so to speak. It's, It's seedy. There's nothing here of God and God's will and God's coming kingdom. We are treated to calculated human actions that do not conform to our expectations. Something is deeply awry when the future king must crawl through a window when the wife of a coming king must lie to her father who is still king. This is a mess. This is a mess. kind of sounds like real life, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like the lives Some of us live. It's a mess. And there's just trouble, trouble, trouble going on. Saul is now alone, and that demon is still driving his intense hatred. And through his obsession with David, Saul has not only lost a son, Jonathan, but he's lost a daughter. So you see how obsession with certain things in life The only thing we're supposed to be obsessed with, as I understand the Bible, is Jesus. We're to be obsessed with him. Anything else we're obsessed with will destroy us. And Saul is being destroyed by this uh, inch by inch throughout this whole narrative. But then comes the weirdest thing of all. What is this prophesying business, and what is it... uh, like and what's going on with it because we see now that there's a fourth escape and this escape is not by a son or a daughter or even directly from the king's hand thus the escape is more dramatic it is a curious episode in the narrative of David he flees to Ramah where Samuel is and the purpose is to identify David with Samuel publicly and then, you know, the last time David had seen Samuel was when he anointed him to be king. Now he goes to where Samuel is, where there was a, quote, school of prophets in Nioth. That's what Nioth means, is a place where there's a school of prophets. And so David flees there, probably for protection, probably to inform uh, Samuel of what's going on. He tells Samuel, Samuel has no comment, meaning he's not surprised. He's not shocked by what's going on. And so the narrator wants to create another uh, element of legitimacy of David, and he does so by leaking David again to the powerful kingmaker, Samuel. And as the narrative presents it, David comes to Samuel. He tells Samuel about Saul's behavior, and Samuel says nothing. Saul still has a very powerful intelligence network working for him, and he hears that this is going on. He once again tries to seize David. He's utterly committed to killing the man, and he must see that david meets his end now the spirit of god however is at work on david's behalf first he sends a group of messengers the first wave comes to arrest david and they are caught up in the power of the spirit and however forget about their mandate to arrest david i don't know what this was but apparently there was an ecstatic kind of experience in which people were sort of possessed by the Spirit, in this case, the Holy Spirit, to where they were rendered to the point of submission and uh, were caught up in the experience of the worship of God. And so he sends the first wave in, happens to them. He sends the second wave in, happens to them. Is there a third wave? Yes. He keeps sending messengers. He keeps sending messengers and they're all grasped by the Spirit and they prophesy. And it refers to some kind of ecstatic experience that causes the messengers to break out of normal acceptable patterns of behavior and engage in frenzied or eccentric conduct not expected of the king's intelligence men. This behavior is understood to be caused by the invasive, compelling power of the Spirit of God who shatters all conventional categories of the perception and conduct. The messengers are completely available for the celebration and communion with the Spirit of God. Therefore... The practical effect of their experience is to cause them to deceased from their mission, that is killing David, apprehending him, to bring him in to be killed. And the na- uh, narrative suggests that God's transformative spirit is peculiarly allied with the attentive uh, and attentive to David. And so finally, in exasperation, Saul himself comes to Ramah. Saul has learned that old adage that if you want something done, what? you got to do it yourself. And he he inquires where Samuel and David are, and the messengers before him inquired as well, and he comes to Nioth where they were. He knew where they were because he'd been there before. Now Saul is finally face-to-face with David. He's ready to kill him. And I don't know if he's got a sword drawn or what, but he's face to face. We're not surprised by what happens next, however. Like everybody else that showed up to do David in, Saul is seized by the same Spirit of God, who allied with David and who perhaps is responsive to the rule of Samuel, and Saul is seized powerfully. He takes off his clothes, and I don't know what he does, but it's a pitifully embarrassing scene before Samuel day and night. The once great man who is still tall is no longer great, and he's exhausted by this demanding religious experience and exercise, clearly not in control, shamed, rendered powerless in a posture of submissiveness. This episode is an act of dramatic delegitimization of Saul. Now, back in chapter 10, We noted that Saul himself had uh, experienced this idea of prophesying when he went to look for his father's donkeys. And at the beginning of his career, when he had been anointed and authorized as king, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. So evident that he was taken uh, affirmatively to assert that Saul is indeed energized and authorized by God's power which is larger than himself conversely in chapter 19 Saul is presented as the would-be killer of God's chosen the second episode with the spirit signals the end of Saul's career this career will be a while winding down but the narrator wants us to see that Saul is in fact done the man is finished So by the end of the episode, he's out of power, out of authority, and the movement from chapter 10 to chapter 19 is a beginning experience of being possessed by the massive power of God to an end experience of the same massive possession. The two episodes bracket and define the tension between Saul and David, and we now notice that he's done, but he doesn't stop because we have more chapters, and he's going to continue this raging rant and uh, uh, killing spree that he wants to let loose upon David. David has very powerful friends, very strategic friends, Jonathan, Michal, Samuel, and he's very blessed in this case, obviously protected in every way by god himself but he still remains in the uh, background he's responsive but he's not proactive most of the attention in this chapter is focused upon saul to present him as the one who is done it's over now All of that's wonderful, Pastor Tim. What a great story, how interesting to know that David escapes four times with the help of two of Saul's children, one on his own agility, and the other by the Spirit of God himself. But what does that have to do with me living in Las Vegas in 2022 in March? How does this apply to me? What does it say to me? And my answer to you is, I don't have the foggiest. No, I do have an idea. (laughs) Or I wouldn't be up here talking if I didn't have an idea. But I'm wrapping it up so hang on despite their military might the soldiers and the king himself are helpless before their encounters with Yahweh's spirit one of my favorite verses in the bible is Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 which famously says not by might nor by power But by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by might, not by kings, not by those in authority, not by those who have more power, more resources, whatever. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Guess who indwells every person who believes in Jesus Christ? the Holy Spirit of God. When we say God is with you and he will never forsake you, or Jesus says I'm with you and I'll never forsake you, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. That is in some sense, and it's a mystery, as is most deep stuff in the Bible, the Holy Spirit has interpenetrated your being and somehow dwells inside of you. Your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's in you. And so therefore, you have spiritual power available to you upon repentance and faith that some of you may not be acquainted with. The Bible tells us to walk in the Spirit, and we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, which causes conflicts. The Bible tells us to be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess. We've all been around people who've been overserved and had too much to drink. And their behavior testifies in reality. They're a little tipsy or worse than that. uh, But it affects how they live. So being filled with the Spirit is similar in the effects are shown. The fruit of the Spirit is present in your life by that. But we live in a context right now in between the two comings of Jesus Christ. There's the first coming. That's been accomplished. Uh, Redemption for all. Christ is now resurrected, ascended at the right hand of God. He will come again and wrap everything up and consummate all of his purposes. But in the present, we live in the tension of a world that hates Jesus. And the more we like him and are like him, the more they hate us without a cause. Now, you can be persecuted by people because you're a little self-righteous snit. (laughs) But you also can be persecuted by people for being like Christ, for being gentle, for forgiving, for uh, submitting yourself, for doing all of these things the Bible commands us to do. But people are going to hate you for that if, if you want to be liked and loved and adored by everyone i remember i had a pastor one time that told me you're known as much in god's kingdom by who hates you as you are by who likes you and we have an enemy we have an enemy and so the story is a yet another reminder of the feebleness of human strength in the face of yahweh's spirit Furthermore, the military imagery here reminds us of the reality of spiritual warfare. This afternoon, go home and meditate on Ephesians chapter 6, where we're told that uh, we are wrestling with principalities and powers and spiritual beings in high places, that there is opposition to us. There is a mental network of accusations and lies coming from the prince of darkness, Satan himself accusing the brethren. We live in that tension. We live in that world that has access to us. We have a world who hates God and anyone like him in this world. And so as a result of that, and people that hate his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as a result of that, we live in constant conflict. That's normative for those of us who are his. The weapons we fight with, however, are not weapons of the world. And through the weapons that we have to fight with, the Holy Spirit, the truth of God's word, our Savior Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, praying for us constantly, present with us always, we can overcome the world through faith. The battle is the Lord's. And in David's case here, he's entirely passive in this entire episode. Who knows how many times God may have saved any of us from stuff that would have done us in? Sometimes I tell people I can smell the tracer smoke of sulfur as the devil passes by. The sulfur of hell. And I may not have ever met Satan, but I've met a pretty good demon of his a couple of times. And I want to tell you something. There are powers of darkness present in this world. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to find a demon under every rock. We don't have to look under our bed before we go to bed at night. We can rest in the arms of Jesus knowing that for all practical purposes, as long as God intends us to be here, we will be here. And when our time for death comes, it will come. But we are protected, David is protected here entirely, this whole chapter, because of God's purposes for his life. And God has a purpose for each one of our lives. But I want you to go home confident, confident, not in yourself, never in yourself. It's foolish to be confident in the sense of relying upon myself to handle everything that comes my way. Because let me tell you something, that's true, you can't handle it. And it's not just the truth. You can't handle it, whatever it is. We're not made to do that apart from God's enablement. So be assured that God's purposes regarding your own life will be worked out to accomplish what is good for you and what brings him the most glory. The battle is the Lord. As God was with David, he is also with us as believers in jesus christ let us pray heavenly father we thank you for the text of the old testament and how it's god breathed and inspired uh, in order to be for us a source of life and hope and peace and joy Uh, we profit from your word as we apply it to uh, the implications of it to our life Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as those who rest in your arms and are content with you and uh, just see the joy of giving back a portion of that which you have so generously entrusted to us. And this we pray in Christ's name, amen.